Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 14th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus heard what had happened with John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the gospel of the Lord Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated and let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your Spirit by the power of your Word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. Well, imagine for me for a second a dad and his daughter. They go down to the sea. For an afternoon of fun, they're going to have a picnic on the sand, they bring a blanket, some chairs with them, all that stuff. And they decide they're going to go tide pooling and and hang out in the water and and all these things. And they're having a great time. And then the little girl, she's about eight, she notices this little vein of water coming off the estuary through the seagrass. The estuary was just right up the the coast and, and she felt in her heart that it was her job, she had to keep that water from reaching the ocean. Didn't belong there. It was going where it wasn't supposed to go. And if any of you know anything about water, water will do what water does. Unless you have an absolute airtight seal, it's going to find a way to do whatever it wants to do. And so she's sitting there building the seawall and, and building up the sand and all this stuff, trying to keep the water from, from going where it wants to go. And the dad, like most dads, is just standing back going, oh, let's see how this goes. And she's struggling and she's fighting against this water and the water just keeps finding its way. And in part, the dad's not helping her because he remembers his tide tables knowing that high tide's coming in. And she could try all she wants, but she doesn't have a chance. Kind of reminds you of that Greek myth about Sisyphus, anybody? Do you remember that from high school? He was a king and he was punished for his vanity and for his arrogance and forced by the gods to have to roll a rock up a mountain. And every time he'd get close to the top of that mountain, it'd roll all the way back down, and he'd have to start all over again. Well, we have a verse that has stuck with me from childhood, and it doesn't come out of the NIV. It's closer to the NRSV or or something, but it's, it's verse 28 out of our reading from Genesis, where God says to Jacob, you have striven with God and with man and you have prevailed. Or in the NIV it says you have overcome. You have striven with God and with man and you have prevailed or overcome. Striven, had strife, struggled, fought, 
That's the story of Jacob. We've heard it over the last few Sundays of his, of his life. He struggled, for instance, with his own sin. His, his name means liar, means cheater. And what does he do? He cheats his own brother out of the inheritance. Without his mom, he cheats his dad out of the blessing. He eventually cheats his own uncle Laban out of the best of the flock. He's a bad husband, bad father. You just continue to read his story and you're like, wow, he does not get cards on Father's Day and or Christmas. But then also, he's been sinned upon. Laban was not that nice to him. You heard this reading from last week, right? Got cheated a little bit there. That wouldn't have gone over so well. But then also, he's terrified of Esau, his own brother, who has vowed to kill him. Then you deal with the fact that he's a shepherd. Those of you who grew up on farms or even farmers now, it's a hard life. My, my great-grandfather was a rancher. Going from sun up to sundown, working at your fingers to the bone to try and bring life, often out of nothing, and sometimes you don't succeed. And he knew that. Struggle, hardship of life. Then you throw in the fact that the reading we're given this morning is he's actually quite literally fighting with God. He has his fear of Esau, but he also has his fear that God is not going to fulfill his promise. Because God promised him, I will bring you back. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you. You are going to return to this land. And he's sitting here, sent everything he has across the water, including his family. He's found all alone, and he's thinking, is God actually going to be truthful? Is God actually going to keep his promise? And he ends up fighting with God, even about that, wrestling. Well, struggle becomes who he is, eventually. Yes, his name means liar or cheat, but then God comes to him and actually gives him a new name, Israel, which means the one who struggles with God. That's a great name, right? My daughter's name we picked, up, we picked out of a hat, Annalise. We, we couldn't decide, so we just, she hates that story. She wants her name to mean something, but we're like, no, we just liked it, and we threw a bunch in a hat, and we picked one out, and that's what you got. You could, you could have been named Guillermo, I don't know. My, my, my son's name was picked out by my wife before I even met her, so I kind of lost in that, Josiah. Just, whatever, I didn't get to win. I got to pick out the middle name, Douglas, my dad's name, but you know, that's neither here nor there. But God gives Jacob a new name, Israel, the one who struggles with God, basically saying, if you think that here all the struggle is going to end, it's not going to, because I've looked forward through your life and I know that things are not going to go that well. That there is going to be struggle, there is going to be strife. And all you have to do is then spend your time reading through the Old Testament. Because what do his descendants get called but the Israelites? the children of Israel, and you look at their lives, and their entire lives are about struggling with God. They go down to Egypt. Things are not going that well for them. They cry out to God. God hears, hears their cry. And then he sends Moses and Aaron, and they send the plagues and all this stuff, and Pharaoh's not very nice to them until he finally lets them go, and they get mad at Moses. They're not even liking the way God is bringing redemption. Then they show up in the wilderness, and that goes really well too. All you got to do is read the book of Numbers. That goes really well. God feeds them with bread from heaven and water from a rock, and all they do is complain. 
Oh, if we were only back in slavery, we would, have, we would at least have some meat. Oh, because life was so much better back then. And they struggle and they fight with God to the point that God says to Moses, leave me alone, let me kill all of them, and I'll start a nation from you. And Moses has to go, okay, no, 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 God, you're the God of the promise, we're going to trust you. And God says, that's right, and then he keeps his promise anyways. Then you go into the book of Judges, where it starts out by saying everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Has that ever gone well? Yeah, if you have kids or grandkids, if one of them wants to watch one thing on TV and the other one wants to watch the other thing on TV, guess who gets to watch TV? Me. Right? That never goes well. Then you get into the book of Samuel and they say, well, we don't want God as our king. We want a king like everybody else. We, we, we want to be like all the other nations. And God basically says, oh yeah, that's going to go really well. Put another sinner in power. That's going to go awesome. And it doesn't. Because then you read the whole story of the kings and it's really bad. There's very few kings in First and Second Kings that are at all good. Just reading the story of David this morning in my morning readings, he's a thief, a scoundrel, a bandit, a pirate. We were talking about you know, he's Jesse James going around and, and raiding and pillaging. And you go all the way through to the exile, taken into captivity again. Then we just have to get to the story of Jesus. God himself coming in the embodiment of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And what do we do? We kill him. That's how much we want to struggle with God. It's a different picture of sin, isn't it? When I was growing up, sin was always uh, no smoking, no drinking, no dancing, no going with girls who do, no watching rated R movies unless they have Jesus in them, no, no using bad language, you better watch what you say. And yet here the picture is one completely different than that. This picture of sin and strife and struggle that's almost all-out war between us and the one who created us. Completely different picture. Well, I want to deal with that last word of that verse really quick, prevailed or overcome. I hate that word. It's always bugged me. Because you read the story, and does, does Jacob actually win? Because that's what prevailed means. Prevailed means to have victory. Does he win the wrestling match? No. It's a stalemate, and then God goes... And his hip goes out of place. That's how God wins. You know, he cheats. But Jacob doesn't win. So I sit there and I read this and I go, that's a bad translation. Even overcome. He didn't overcome in the battle. And so I had to look up this word, yakol. And more often than not, you know what it means? To be able to do something. Just to be able to do something. As though God is saying, you have striven against God and man and you're still here. As though you've survived. You made it through. You didn't win, you didn't lose, you're just here. As though through all of the sin, all of the strife of our lives, all of the warring against God and against one another, God is saying, you survived, Jacob. You made it. And you will. Another way to translate the word is to endure, or to remain, or persevere. That's a good New Testament word. It's used for us all the time. It's as though in this moment, God is speaking to Jacob and saying, you've persevered, you kept going through the strife. It's this picture for us. 
We're told by, by Paul in Romans 6 to hold on to the promise of our baptism because don't you know that those of you who have been baptized into Christ have been buried with him in baptism and raised to new life. You already died and now you live in him. Or 1 Peter, you can read through all of 1 Peter and it's all about suffering and hardship and remaining, surviving, being there. And then I looked up the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it actually means to be strengthened. How many of us through hardship and pain and the sufferings of life, the reality is, is most of us become stronger because of it. And look, I can look back on my life and look at all the sins that I've committed and go, well, you know what? I try not to commit those anymore. But God has made me stronger through it. It's this big word, sanctification, right? The Spirit working on us to help us, to be with us, to grow us, to mature us in Christ. Well, the other verse that I love in the story of, of Jacob is right before, in verse 26. I love this picture. I will not let you go until you bless me. As though he's this little child holding on to God's leg and God's trying to walk away and can't. When I was eight or nine, uh, in, in San Luis Obispo, California, there's where, where I, I grew up, where my family is, uh, there's an ordinance passed that you can't build any higher of a certain elevation on the mountains because they want to be able to have those mountain peaks there for us to see and to climb and to have for public access. So when my grandpa bought our homestead, three acres, which is worth about $5 million now, which is about monopoly money when it comes to California, it's really not worth that much. Um, he bought it so that the edge of the property is right at that elevation. So there's no houses above where my grandpa lived. So when we were eight or nine, maybe 10 and, and my brothers and I and some guys from the, from, the, from the neighborhood, we decided we were going to climb all the way to the top of that mountain. We'd never gone all the way to the top. So we're making our way up there, and I, like an idiot, decide to take a different road than everybody else was taking. You know, how many of you done that? Everyone else is going one way, and you're like, oh, this looks better over here. Well, I started to slide down the mountain. I was terrified. I'm crying out for my daddy. I'm holding on to anything and everything that I possibly can to the point that I stopped sliding, and I became one with that mountain. I and that mountain were one. And I'm crying out, and my brothers are going, oh, just put your hand here, put your foot here. I'm not going to listen to them. They'd tell me to go play in traffic if they wanted to. So one of them runs down to get my dad. And my dad comes up and finally says, okay, put your foot here, put your hand here, and I make my way to the top. But I was waiting for my daddy. I'm holding on to that mountain. It's this picture of Jacob holding on to God, saying, I'm not going to go until you bless me. I'm not going to go until you come and tell me some good news. I'm not going to go until you remind me of the promise that I've forgotten so that my fear of Esau, my fear of all these things, will subside, that I might be strengthened, that I might survive, that I might persevere, that I might endure, that I might just be able to be in you. And that's us. We need to desire the source of the promise given to us, the one that Christ gives to us. I love it in John 14. John's this perfect place to go because one of Christ's favorite phrases besides abide, remain, 
is peace. He says to us, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Peace. Time of war. Time of hardship. Time of struggle. Christ coming to us and saying, in me, you have peace. You have sanctuary. You have hope. You have grace. And then Paul, in one of his sermons in Acts, says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A righteousness you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Freedom and peace in Christ. Given to us. Handed to us. As a gift. When we read the story of the feeding of the 5,000, our minds always go to the feeding of the hungry, which is good. We do that in the ELCA. We do a really good job of that, don't we? Our hunger appeals and everything else. We work really hard to be able to do that. But that's not what the story's about, actually. Because if you read the story, it's not about us feeding anybody. The disciples come to Jesus, and Jesus has shown compassion and, and, and mercy to these, to these folks, and he's healed them, and he's been teaching them, and it's a deserted place. They're there out in the middle of the nowhere, and they have nothing, and they come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, dismiss, dismiss the crowds. The service is going on long enough. They need to go to Cracker Barrel. They need to go somewhere. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. And you have Peter and Andrew basically going, well, you know, I've got like a couple pieces of toast in my backpack. I think John has some sun chips in the trunk of the car and we might be able to scrounge together a two liter of Mountain Dew. That's all we got. But otherwise, they say to Jesus, we can't. Are you kidding me? We can't feed them. And Jesus says to him, I know you can't, but I can. Watch. And he does offering up this food to all the people, and it says that they were satisfied, giving to us in a time when we are most in need, when we are most struggling through life, when things have been taken away. So even in this time of pandemic, we hold on to Christ because he's the one that stands true, always. Even on a Sunday like this morning where we don't have singing, we can't have communion right now. The promise doesn't fail. It's still there. The word is still proclaimed. Our struggle and our sin remind us of our mortality, of our need, of our struggles, of our hardship, of our smallness. And then Christ comes, the one who wrestled with Jacob. And he says, I'm here. I'm here to end your striving. So the one thing I'd say to you, church, this morning is cling to Christ. Flee to him. Hold on to him so that he might whisper the blessings of the promise in your ears every single day that you might not forget them. My, fav- my favorite hymn is an Advent hymn. And you know, this is August, so August Advent. There's some alliteration there, so I thought that would be okay. But it comes out of Isaiah 40. Some of you probably know it, but uh, I-, I like the older version. But comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak ye peace, so says our God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning neath sorrow's load. Then it says, Speak ye to Jerusalem of the peace that waits for them. Tell her that her sins I cover, that her warfare now is over. That's what Christ brings to us. 
what God brings to us in His promise that will not fail. Thanks be to God. Amen.